So my guest today, Scott Barry Kaufman, has a PhD from Yale, an MPhil from Cambridge, and now teaches at Barnard. That's not too shabby for a kid who is labeled as lesser than, put into special education, and told he didn't have the intelligence to really achieve anything meaningful in school or life. And all it took was a single moment in ninth grade where a teacher of his took note of his kind of innate curiosity and abilities and prompted him to reclaim control over his education and eventually life. In that moment, everything changed. Now he is an acclaimed psychologist, researcher, professor. He embraces a kind of a humanistic, integrative approach that really takes into account a wide range of human variation from learning disabilities to intellectual and creative giftedness to introversion, narcissism, and something he calls twice exceptionality, all in the name of helping all kinds of minds live a more creative, more fulfilling, more meaningful life. Scott also writes the weekly Beautiful Minds column for Scientific American. He hosts the Psychology Podcast, which is awesome. You should check it out. Uh, He writes, his books include Ungifted and Wired to Create, two awesome reads. And lately he's been taking a serious deep dive into self-actualization and transcendence, getting rare access to Maslow's published and private writing that has fueled his own research and identified the key elements of what it takes to really step more fully into the experience of life. Super excited to share this wide-ranging and eye-opening conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. 
If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Incredibly accomplished by all possible sort of like ways people might describe you from the outside in the word intelligent is going to creep into the conversation. Yet, if we take a big step back in time, when you were a little kid, your experience of the way that people sort of treated you was very different. Yeah, it's very surreal to me when people say that, like, you're brilliant. I'm not saying like everyone says that, but I'm saying whenever someone says you're smart or whatever, it's very, very surreal to me to hear that because it definitely was not part of my self-schema growing up. So kind of like was hard for me to transition to adulthood where that was like an adjective, like people were actually seeing, perceiving that. And I didn't have to like work hard for people to perceive it that way, if that makes sense. Like I spent a lot of my early childhood trying to kind of prove myself, trying to feel like I had to prove it because I had a label of, of a learning disability called central auditory processing disorder. What is that? How did that manifest? It, what it did is it made it like a little bit slower for me to process auditory input so what I would do, and I don't know what it's like to be a normal human being, but for me, like growing up as an only child, like I would hear a stream of, of input and then I would replay it in my head and then I would kind of like download it and then process it later. You know, it's like I didn't have this kind of real time, real time uh, processing of auditory input. And that was the result, you know, I was, well, you probably don't know, but I was essentially deaf the first couple of years of my life with ear infections. So they say like when you're blind and and they do an operation for you not to be blind anymore, you don't see all of a sudden. You have to learn how to see. So when they did the the operation, they put in tubes, everything at age three or I think it was or four. It's not like I automatically could hear or or know what I was had a process input. So that was a result of that. So yeah, it's to this day, it's like fascinating to me when if if people perceive me as as intelligent i'm like wow i don't even have to like work hard to prove that anymore i can just can i calm down of, of finally you know i mean it's so interesting because so many so much of that type of identity gets it gets like we step into it at such a young age and yeah. no matter what happens no yeah. matter how much we accomplish in the world it follows us for so long it really does so you're as as a young kid you're experiencing things as i mean it's so interesting the way you described it too which is you would hear it, but you wouldn't really process or integrate it. But it was almost like it was downloaded into your brain and you could work through it later. Did you find that, that I don't know if you can answer this, when you would sort of revisit and say, okay, so let me actually digest this. Were you playing it at a slower speed? Was it how, do you have any sense for how you were actually doing that? Well, you know, I think that I did have a certain intelligence that gave me a compensatory advantage as we say in the field, you know, so I think their uh, intelligence can be a protective factor for some learning disabilities. And I, and now looking back at my life, and especially now I study what are called twice exceptional children. And we can talk about that because that's a big part of my research interest these days. Um, I think that I was twice exceptional by that definition in the sense that I had this working memory capacity where I could hold that auditory input in my head and then really, really quickly process it. So eventually I got to the point, and even to today, I don't know what it's like to be a normal human being. So I don't know, maybe I've just, I, even today, maybe I'm not really in real time hearing you. Like maybe I'm playing the tape in my head really quickly, but it's almost imperceptible now. Like you wouldn't, like, would you talk to me and say, well, 
Boy, he really has a central auditory processing disorder. Yeah. <laughs> you did it. You just be nice. No. Um, so it's interesting. So it's almost like it's still there, but but your experience of it is the gap between the time where it goes in and it's you're sort of processing it now. has narrowed dramatically. Yeah. It, comp- it compensated yeah. so quickly and efficiently after so many years of this. I think this is just something that we underestimate in anyone who has suffering uh, or, or a going uphill battle in a certain area in which they need to be resilient. I mean, we can learn all sorts of strategies that really can take us to the same eventual outcome. Yeah. So so when you're a little kid and you're grappling th- with this, how did that show up in the way that you you have to go to school, obviously, and so you're in this learning environment, which is very traditional and very sort of, it is the way it is. So how does that show up in your life in the context of your early education, you as a young kid? Well, it showed up in the sense that I retreated into an inner world of fantasy and imagination. I really detached from the the regular classroom. And, you know, the one word that I have all these things saved, like all these like teacher reports when I was a kid, and they all would say, he's really, really creative. And there was always a but after that, you know, it was always like, it, it wasn't like, you know, wow, he's really creative, period. <laughs> it was like every single one was like, yeah, he's really, really imaginative, but he needs to learn how to behave. Like, he needs to learn how to, like, yeah, he came in the other day when I was trying to read to the classroom and he ran around in a Superman cape. Okay, yeah, I understand that's not normal childhood behavior, but can you build off that at all? And I mean, I was really bored as well. Just the traditional sort of model of education of like, you know, just sit in your seat and pay attention. That was just never for me. But it was always viewed as a, as a very negative thing. Like whenever I tried to, I wrote stories, really elaborate, creative. I, I was really into creative writing. So to answer your question, one one concrete way it manifests itself was through a lot of creative writing. My mom has it all, has it saved, but that was viewed as like bad behavior pretty much. Hmm. So, I mean, it's sort of like you're trying to fit into the box of what is yeah. education traditional school yeah. and it's just not working. Yeah. So how did they deal with it? I mean, how did, how did the teachers deal with you? Well, they put me in special education. Uh, yeah. And gave me even more remedial classes. You know, that's like, that was my punishment. <laughs> for not behaving and being anxious as well. So another issue is that I had a lot of anxiety. Mostly I started to develop the, this is a pretty, uh, it's rocket science, right? I developed the anxiety once they put me in special education and told me that I was not capable of the regular course load. So that gave me anxiety. And then that they said, well, we need to like give him double remediation because he's anxious. So it's like, you know, this stuff really creates a cycle for a lot of these kids. And I saw that firsthand, but I also... As a kid, was like, wow, I really want to change this someday. Yeah, I mean, and also on the level of identity, it's it it creates a label. You yeah, know, it's like something that you step into. Where yeah. and and especially at that age, you know, it's it's not necessarily seen as something where, well, this is just this is their label. This is the way that they need to sort of put me in the box they need to put me in. But this is not necessarily me, and it's not necessarily, and also just the the way I'm experiencing things is not for life. Like this is a moment in time. So how, how do things start to change? Well, there was a teacher in ninth grade. I, I was kept in special ed until ninth grade, but there was a special ed teacher who was coming, covering for the regular teacher. And I was sitting there one day taking an untimed history test. You, you are removed from the regular classroom and you go to the special resource room to take an untimed test. And I remember being really bored with this test and thinking if it's untimed, I can just I have the rest of my life to finish it. So... Um, what's the point? And she 
and was looking at me very curiously. And she took me aside after class and she's like, you know, why are you still here? Like, you know, I've, I've, I don't really do this with all, a lot of students, but it just seems like you really don't belong here. And I realized she's the first person to ever asked me that question. So I was like, huh? Like, yeah, why am I here? It quickly turned into, why am I here? I, I got started to get fired up, you know, and I told my parents, you know, I, I'm going to take myself out of special ed. I'm going to see what I'm capable of. Like, like she really empowered me just by even asking me that question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and even because the question implies a sense of agency. Like you actually, part of the reason you're here is, is up to you. Yeah. Yeah. It was like no one's ever broken out of special ed before at my school district. So Kobe Bryant tried, but he did go to the school at the same time as me. But So yeah. what do your parents say when you go home and you're like, because your par- <sighs> were your parents just assuming like, well, okay, like they know best. This, this is the track that's best supporting him in his education. They supported me for sure. I think they always were very well-meaning and trying to do what was best. My mom always wanted to do what's best for me. She also was a very overprotective mother, a Jewish mother, you know, like very overprotective. And just erred too much on the side of caution, you know, and sometimes with kids, you gotta like let them fail, you know, let them see what they're capable of. So I was excited to see what I was capable of. And they were, they were supportive of that decision. Yeah. So then what do you do with that? I mean, you're nine years old. This teacher has just challenged. Well, it's ninth grade. Actually, literally high school. Got it, got it, got it. I was in special until high school. I wasn't college bound, you know, like that wasn't the trajectory that I was on at all. So and somewhere in the middle there too, because I mean, so by ninth grade, I'm trying to remember with, with my kid, like there are at some point, they also like a lot of schools make this split, you know, like the quote gifted and talented track. Right. And the, then you have this sort of like in the middle track and then, yeah. and then probably on the other spectrum, at least the way they would, would put it is learning challenged or, yeah. or special ed. So, so there, there's also like the opposite end here, which is the quote gifted and talented are the ones who are labeled gifted and talented. And very often that's based on yeah. a single test. Yeah. The thing that was frustrating for me is that I, uh, they ask you like what courses you want to take once you get in high school. They don't do that in middle school, but in, in high school they ask you. And I remember saying, I would really like to, I really like biology. I would like to take a gifted uh, biology class. And they they said, no, you can't. <laughs> you definitely can't do that. You're not capable of that. But the the the, the torture was that they, they the resource room where I had to go to take all the time tests was right across the hall from the advanced biology freshman class. So they, it was like torture for me because like that's – and that's really where I wanted to be. And I think that special ed teacher really picked up on that. You know, God bless her. Yeah. So, where is, all right, so, so it's ninth grade. You've got this new challenge yeah. for you. You've got the rest of high school to do something different. Yeah. So what do you do? I really made a change. Like I, they took, you, I took, signed up for summer classes. The first, so right after freshman year, that summer, taking all sorts of classes to try to catch up. During that history summer class, I overheard um, a young lady talk about how the school orchestra she was like a violinist in the school orchestra. And she's talking about how awesome it is, how they travel the world and they do all sorts of things. And a light bulb went off in my head and and literally right after that that class i walked right to this the orchestra conductor's room he was yeah, the orchestra room he was alone in there tuning a violin i just went right in there i was like hey my name's scott and i'd like to sign up for the school orchestra in the in the in the in you know in the fall i don't know what it was called in high school i don't know if it was fall but you know when school starts up again he's like hello like let you in you know he, and he's like what do you play and I was like, yeah, I don't play anything yet, but I'll, I'll play cello by by the start, you know. And he's like, you know, people have been playing since 
you know, elementary school. He's like, who, like, who's your teacher? You know, I said, I said, Harry Goretzer. And he said, okay, sign up. Harry Goretzer happened to be my grandfather and was a famous cellist with the Philadelphia Orchestra. And I knew that I, I was determined to learn from him. And I and I actually signed up for the orchestra with him before I even asked my granddad if he would teach me, but I knew that my granddad <laughs> would love it. He was retired at that point. And my grandma had always been like, please, you know, have him have, have him teach you cello. So I, I, right, I went to after school to my granddad. I was like, hey, will you teach me how to play cello this summer? I want to join the school orchestra. And he was delighted. And I, I must have practiced eight, eight hours a day and then eight, nine hours. Then in school, that first semester that I was out of special ed and I was in the orchestra, was the most exhilarating feeling to be in the orchestra. And when they were all tuning that A string, I remember, my gosh, this is the first time I've ever been in a room. It dawned on me. It's the first time I've ever been in a room where there were high expectations for everyone in that room. You know, and I didn't know what that felt like to have high expectations, you know, because I was so used to having this label and, you know, and, and being remediated and everything is all, everything was always about like, oh, well, let's make sure Scotty can handle it. I'm done with the coddling. Like the next person that calls me, I'm going to punch him. <laughs> So I mean, was you know that what I mean? right? I mean, it's interesting. Like that was the moment for you, yeah. Where you yeah. like there was an awakening. Like okay, it so, was awakening. Like yeah. a, you can't imagine. I mean, I can't even. Prior to ninth grade, I can't even remember who I was. Like I was nothing. I was a, a you know, I had, I had no identity. I had no ambition. No, like it's it's incredible. And but that's not entirely true. There are some things I don't admit. I did dabble with uh, computer hacking. <laughs> that was my way of acting out in middle in middle school. Got it. Yeah. Do you ever wonder what would have happened had that one teacher in Not ninth grade anything? never pulled you aside and said anything? Yeah, I probably would still be in special ed today. <laughs> I think it's quite likely that the trajectory I was on would continue for, for quite a while where I, you know, I, I definitely, I just was not college bound. And not only that, but I probably wouldn't even discover that I had a musical talent. So there were other coincidences things. So once I started to do orchestra, I also overheard the choir singing. Regina Gordon, the uh, choir conductor there, started talking to her and we got along really well. And she's like, you know what, why don't you join the, you know, the chamber singers? And we meet after, after school. And I just started going to chamber singers, then realized I had a voice, like I could sing. And that was actually my ticket to higher education because in senior year of high school, I applied to Carnegie Mellon University for the psychology major. And I wrote a personal essay, which I still have saved about the first question is, what is achievement? You know, what is what is intelligence? You know, uh, this is a 17 year old Scott, you know, saying like, we need a new way of thinking about this stuff. And I got rejected from the psychology department. They, you know, basically my SAT scores were too low to redefine intelligence. <laughs> I thought that was the most ironic thing in the world. You know, they're like, your personal essay is great. And we love your spirit of redefining intelligence, but your SAT scores aren't high enough. Right. It's like, but, but the, this one test is telling us yeah. you're not actually smart yeah. enough to redefine yeah. it. I thought that was really ironic. So, so strange. So I rolled up to Carnegie Mellon for, to their opera program because the same school, uh, same university, but it's a, but their music conservatory, they didn't look at SAT scores too as highly as the psychology department. And I went in and I sang my heart out and they offered me a partial scholarship to Carnegie Mellon. And for opera. For opera. Right. So that's how I got in, through the back door. You know? Was your intention the whole time? Like that was your... No, that actually wasn't. I wanted to be a psychology major and I did want, I did want to sing opera for sure. In fact, I wanted a double major. I think in my heart of hearts, I really wanted to be a double major. Yeah, the psychology program rejected me. So I was full on opera major at Carnegie Mellon for about a year, year and a half uh, until I, my heart pounding 
in my dance tights because uh, I just come from dance class, went to the psychology department and my heart was re- literally beating. And the secretary was there and she was on lunch break or whatever, eating a bologna sandwich or something. And I was just like, hey, do you think maybe I could be a minor in psychology here? I just took a course intro to psych and it was so good. And, you know, it's called from the door technique. You, you start you start small, thought like a minor would be. And she it wouldn't be a big deal. And she's like, yeah, whatever. It's no problem to sign this piece of paper. And I, I just couldn't believe it. Like, I remember and just like skipping in my tights back with this paper in my hand. Like, holy cow. Like, I just cheated the system. Like, like here I am. Like, like when, if you just show up, if you find a way to show up to a place of high expectations, people stop questioning things. You know, like people give you more opportunities if you just show up. And I think that's why to this day I'm super sensitive to and want to fight for the underdog or fight for people that we – have labeled the totality of their being, you know, in yeah. some way. It's almost like in a way you took all your experience and also probably a little bit of your hacking lens. Maybe. Oh, that's a good like, point. It's like what you, a good you point. Had, I never made that connection right. before. It's like you hacked the system for, yeah. okay, you're like, I want to go yeah. to CMU, but I want to study psychology, but I can't I go in that the way. the system. So let me do some social hacking to I, actually I did get social in hacking. You're right. Yeah. You're the first person to make that connection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too that that was always your intention, but yeah. What's interesting to me also is that you were willing to play a long game. I was, yeah, yeah. I was really determined to, particularly once I took a course in cognitive psychology my sophomore year, and we had a textbook, and there was a chapter on intelligence. And once I discovered the science of intelligence, there was no turning back. I mean, that was it for me. Like, I had a vague idea that I wanted to do psychology, but I didn't know there was a whole field. It's It was almost like... In my head, I created this field that already existed, you know, like, and I didn't even know it existed. And then when I learned it, first of all, when I learned it existed, I remember thinking to myself, damn it, you know, like, I wanted to be the one to redefine intelligence. <laughs> it's funny. I, I remember thinking, like, wow, this exists. But then I was like, this is the guy I need to study with. So I looked at the front cover of the book, the textbook said it was written by Robert Sternberg, Yale University. And I remember thinking, kind just, of a legendary guy, legendary yeah. psychologist. And I was like, well, that's who I'm going to study with in grad school. And I went to the 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 professor of cognitive psychology that I was studying with, Anne Fay. She became a very important mentor of mine. I, to, I told her my intention. I said, I would love to go to grad school with Robert. She said, great, let's figure out a plan, a very detailed plan to make that happen. So we did independent readings on intelligence. We had a whole semester where we, yeah, we, we read every week. We would meet and discuss research on intelligence. I, I was in the library all the time. I think I read every book in the intelligence section of the library. I was obsessed. I studied with Herb Simon, who was a Nobel Prize laureate, took his graduate level class. And, and then I spent a whole summer as a, as a unpaid intern in Robert Sternberg's lab at Yale. And he got me in despite my, again, not stellar GRE scores. Yeah. So, I mean, as you're doing all this, you're, I mean, clearly you're deepening your academic knowledge of the field in a huge way and also simultaneously setting you up for this, again, longer term thing that you're like, I will work, I'll figure out a way and I'm willing to wait a couple of years and reverse engineer the process to get there. So you're, you're redefining your own sort of cognitive capacity or redefining the way you look at it. But how, how as you're sort of moving through this and building your wisdom and your knowledge and your chops, how's it changing you as a person in the way that you saw yourself and experienced the world? Really significantly, like I didn't realize how much I loved learning till I was given the opportunity to do so. I, I really did not realize it. It, it. it was something that really struck something deep within me, how much I just enjoyed 
I, I remember I had just stacks upon stacks of binders of, with papers, scientific papers, especially the, the semester on independent reading. Anne Faye couldn't keep up with me. Like she um, wrote that in her letter of recommendation for me, for the Gates Scholarship, because she, she let she let me read her letter of recommendation. She's like, literally, I could not keep up with Scott because he would like be he was too excited, you know, like to learn this stuff, and he would come to me and he would, ha- would have read two binders worth of stuff on human intelligence. And I was just ravenously curious about this field and about, uh, I wanted to learn everything. I felt like, I felt, almost felt like I had to catch up, <laughs> you know, and I didn't realize that. I, so it really changed my, my view of myself because I didn't realize that I loved learning and also that I could learn, you know? So maybe those two went together. Like once I realized I could learn also that excited me to, that I wanted to learn more. I don't know. Maybe it was an interesting cycle. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. 
LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I mean, at the same time, it's like you're capable of performing at an exceptionally high level. But I mean, you just threw something else out, which is that here you are, You've, you're in Carnegie Mellon and you're like a top university. You're in a psychology program studying with incredible people. You're setting yourself up to study with this brilliant person at Yale and achieving at the highest possible levels. And then one of the, one of the things to get into a program like Yale, a grad school like Yale, where you eventually do your PhD, as you shared, is you got to take the GRE, you know? So then in the middle of this whole thing drops this one sort of like, again, old school experience of like, here's a standardized test and you go and take it and don't perform on by that not metric. Yale standards, not right. by Yale standards. I didn't actually didn't, I didn't do that bad on the juries to be yeah. honest. It's not like, that's not, wasn't as bad as my SATs, but for Yale standards, oh man, I, I, they, I probably, that might be a Guinness world, yeah. world record there. I mean, did, did that rattle you at all or by that point where you just like okay I, I get what's happening now and I can yeah. file it where it yeah. needs to be filed. That's exactly right. I, yeah. I got to the point where I, I realized that by that point, wow, I can actually I guess continue to hack things. <laughs> yeah. Come to think of it. now now I'm framing this in terms of hacking, which I never had before. But I'm like, wow, I think I I, I was like, well I, I can you know, I'm good at this hacking thing. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like I, I got into the, the the psychology department. Maybe I could figure out an alternative. Right now, and instead of the hacking framing, I had thought of it as like, you know, there's multiple paths. There's there's multiple routes to get to where you want to go. Man. And yeah, so you end up showing up at hell and you study, you do your PhD, and again, you're deepening into this whole time the exploration of it goes back to that original goal. I want to redefine intelligence or the way we, we sort of like look at intelligence. It's, it's a bunch of years back. We actually had Sir Ken Robinson on and, oh, yes. and he threw out a line, which has always stayed with me is, you know, most people ask the question, you know, like, are you intelligent? He's like, that's not the right question. The question isn't, are you intelligent, but how are you intelligent? Yeah. What do you think of that frame? Interesting. Well, as I will say it is totally surreal to, to headline creativity events with Sir Ken Robinson now. Like, like I never thought that day would come. And, and I listened to him talk at these events and think that, oh, this is going to be a very nuanced answer. Are you ready for a really nuanced answer? Earlier in my career, I would have been more excited about things like that, uh, statements like that. For sure, like, you know, like Howard Gardner, who has the theory of multiple intelligences, really, really inspired me in grad school to want to be in this field. And Robert Sternberg, who's a multiple intelligence guy. But I asked, once I started studying intelligence, Formally, and, and I knew that if I was going to change the system, I'd have to learn the traditional route. So I actually, uh, I took a year off of Yale and went to University of Cambridge, where I, on a Gates Cambridge scholarship, where I studied with a leading British psychometrician, Nicholas McIntosh, studying like traditional IQ. And what I learned from that is that there is such a thing as general intelligence. There's such a thing like IQ, the total score is not meaningless, you know, like it does predict lots of things in, in, in on average. In the general population, the nerdy side of me is like, you know, like there was this like personal side of me that like really like if I heard that Sir Ken Robinson quote back in, in college again, it would have it would have fired me up. And it's a very firing up statement. 
but I think that it's also probably not completely scientifically accurate because I think that while there are lots of different ways to be intelligent, people on average do tend to actually be good at lots of these things, you know, at, at the same time, you know, like it's not like a, a complete, bi- you know, ability sort of split, you know, there are people who are really quick learners across the board, you know. So, you know, like the, the nerdy side of me, like once I started studying traditional intelligence, realized there are both multiple intelligences and a general intelligence, you know, but, you know, you really have to ask, what is the purpose of school? You know, and I think that is that Sirka Robinson has, has done a lot of really important work in kind of framing it that way as not even intelligence. Maybe we can even just go beyond the intelligence framing, you know, why, why does everything have to be constantly about the word intelligence, you know? Yeah. There are different abilities. Right. And it's also, I mean, intelligence is a loaded word to a certain extent, right? Totally loaded. Because everybody, it's like, I don't ever want to be labeled anything but, you know, and- There's a lot of things that are in life that are are more important than intelligence. Yeah. I I mean, it's, (laughs) and and there's so much more research around that now also. But even so, like, I I would remember, like, if I flash back to my law school days, and I was always the back row person in school. And I was, I was kind of coast, but in law school, I was like, I'm doubling down. I want to do the best that I can possibly do. And I, and I worked nonstop. And very often because I worked on the assumption that I am 100% not the smartest person in the room. Whatever blend of nature and nurture got me into this room, you know, I probably shouldn't be here because my grades aren't very, weren't very good in college. In fact, they were pretty bad. And, but here's my chance to prove myself, to prove what I'm actually capable of. Still, I was the back row person because I, I kind of, you know, that's, that was my MO. And I also remember having one friend who basically would blow off the entire semester. He would like kind of touch down every once in a while for a class and sleep through most of it. And then at the end of class, he would end up getting the high score. And the way he did it was that he would, you know, he would, he would beg borrow and whatever he was, he was a lovely guy. So he'd be like, "Hey, can I take a look at your outline?" Or you know, like he would be like trading up for different people's outlines and stuff like that. And then he had what was labeled. I don't know if this is a real phenomenon or not, but what he said was a, a photographic memory. And he would scan a hundred-page document, essentially be able to just recall the entire thing. And he would show up at the room, good friend to have, and he would just nail the whole thing. Yes, on the one hand, good friend to have. The other hand, I'm like, son of a bitch, <laughs> you know, I'm like, why couldn't I have gotten that brain? Like, and I associated that with this innate intelligence that I didn't and never would have. Yeah. I mean, isn't there, aren't there lots of, it's so funny. I bet if we interviewed him, he would like spontaneously say like, you know, I had this friend John that feels and I just loved the way he was just like, he, like everyone loved him. Like he was, yeah, so, I don't know about like, that. He was everyone so, loved yeah. this guy. Also, no, so. no. But that you have certain social skills, you have certain other cognitive tricks up your sleeve that he doesn't have. I mean, it's, it's just funny how we always think like, you know, the grass is greener just because someone's more different than us. You know, the grass is not greener just because someone has something that you don't have. No, I totally agree. So you get to a point where you're actually, okay, let, let me put my flag in the ground in this world of intelligence. And here's my theory, you know, so share a bit. That took that. a while to actually, because I actually spent many, many years dutifully studying traditional intelligence with the idea that someday I would like to redefine it. But it's not like I immediately hit the ground running and redefined it. That didn't happen until 2013, until 
or actually 2009, my published my PhD dissertation was a new theory. It was that was a new theory of intelligence called the dual process theory of intelligence. But leading up to that, this that was the culmination of everything. But there was a good, you know, seven, eight years where I just put my head down and tell any anyone uh, that I was working with my my story because I didn't want them to think of me any differently. I didn't, you know, when I'm studying traditional and I heard a lot of discriminatory things from intelligence researchers as I was doing this research that I had to bite my lower lip, you know, like we would print out data and there would be a scatter plot and there would be like some points, uh, some, some people whose IQ was about the same level as mine was, you know, when I was tested with a learning disability when I was a seven years old. And they would make comments like, oh, look at those dum-dums on that side of the curve. Or, and I'm like, I just wanted to be like, mother, mm-hmm. you know, like really? So I just kept my mouth shut, uh, kept my head down. And yeah, it wasn't until my... PhD dissertation that I decided to redefine intelligence, uh, and I called it the dual process theory. Yeah. Is there, I know this was your entire dissertation, and it was years worth of work. Two volumes. Is there a simple <laughs> way that you could sort of share, like, this is a central idea behind your lens on what on intelligence? For sure. I can make it very simple. So what dawned on me is that what had been missing from traditional theories of intelligence was about 50% of human cognition, and that's was our that's our, our smart unconscious. So much of these IQ tests uh, put you on the spot and make you cognitively reason things out. And But there's a very uh, smart, intuitive system within us that evolved, that was shared with other animals, that, you know, other animals don't have a consciousness like they do, but they can learn things really quickly, especially probabilistic patterns. So I adapted a whole bunch of tasks that were in the cognitive science literature for the purpose of just experimentally studying our unconscious ability to learn patterns and things. And I adapted them for intelligence research and published uh, one of the first papers showing that individual differences in our intuitive capacities, you know, how people differ from each other, was completely uncorrelated or very weakly correlated with differences in IQ. And that was very exciting to me because it suggested to me, wow, there's a whole other world of intelligence within us that we haven't really measured. So I came up with this dual process theory of intelligence where I defined, I'm tr- now I'm trying to remember how I defined intelligence in 2009. I think I defined it as the ability to flexibly switch between different modes of thought depending on the task demands. That's how I define intelligence. And I didn't limit it to the conscious mode of thought. You know, I, I definitely, you know, there's different modes of thought. There's the, I also studied something called uh, openness to experience in my dissertation, which led to my research in creativity. But I also suspected that there was uh, some forms of cognition that like artists have and stuff that wasn't being tapped into as well. So that was another major argument in my dissertation is like, what about artistic cognition? You know, what about, so I studied something called latent inhibition, which is a form of unconscious processing that artists have a very weak latent inhibition, but that had been treated in the literature as only schizophrenics have that, you know, only like crazy people have that. And I was like, well, but a lot of creative people in this literature seem to have it too, right? So isn't there more to this story? So that was another big component of my dissertation as well. So you said that was how you defined these things in 2009. Nine. That yeah. was 10 years ago, as we sit here and record this. Yeah. How has that changed? I for you? built on the dual process when I was working on Gifted re- Intelligence Redefined, which came out in 2013. So by 2013, I was defining intelligence as the dynamic interplay of ability and engagement in the pursuit of personal goals. It's a mouthful of a definition, but we can unpack it. Yeah, and, so let's do that. Tell yeah, me more. Yeah. So intelligence seemed like we couldn't really think of intelligence or the intellectual capacity or potential of a human without taking into account two things in addition to their ability. 
One is how engaged are they in the task or what we're assessing and, you know, how enthusiastic or relevant is it to their life? And then, you know, how much does it is associated with their personal goals in life? You know, like, so I think call it the theory of personal intelligence. So I have the theory of dual process theory of intelligence and I have the theory of personal intelligence. So those are two th theories that I have. These days, I'm much more into the theory of personal intelligence because I think it's more practical for helping to assess. We shouldn't just be about obsessively obsess assessing all the time. Bring, have, uh, it should be about bringing it out, you know, in lots of kids. To do so, we need to really like ask them, not just stick them in a room and give them a completely abstract reasoning task that's divorced from their own life. You know, I feel like we need to engage them in the relevance of the tasks we're asking them to do and, 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 and actually ask them, what, what are your dreams? What are your aspirations in life? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting, though, to bring that into the conversation about intelligence, because that starts to bring in factors that are external to the person. Well, I mean, it's some internal, but also external, but at least it, it brings in a, a, a lot more sort of environmental effect and other people. It's like, it's this bigger ecosystem, where so much of the classic understanding of intelligence is not like, this is you from the inside out, like, this is, this is your brain. <laughs> and it's largely fixed, too. You're like, it is what it is. And you can kind of make up for it to a certain extent by like, but, but it kind of more or less is what it is. But the idea of bringing in how engaged are you in the thing that you're doing and how connected to a sense of personal purpose or, you know, like, like I really want to strive to, to understand or make this happen. Those are not two things that I think most people would associate, associate with, with intelligence. Word, yeah. Called intelligence. And I've gotten that criticism. Trust yeah. me. Like I, that's not something I have heard that a lot. And I think that it's, it, that's fair enough, but like, I, I never in my book and gifted, I never disregarded the value of IQ testing. See, I've never, I've never been an anti IQ person. A lot of people put me in that slot because they think I should be, but I'm like, I always, I'm constantly surprising people what, what I actually think about things. <laughs> this is the kind of a story of my life as well. You know, people assume, oh, you must think this or that. And it's like, no, actually I have a, um, I think two, I hold in mind two things that may seem contradictory and I think they're both true. So I think we can differentiate general intelligence from personal intelligence. And I do that in my book. I think there's people with high general intelligence, but very low personal intelligence and, and vice versa. You know, there are people who are very quick learners and they learn things their whole life, but none of the things they learn matter to them or they or light them up. You know, like you can be a good processing machine and be as depressed as all heck in your life, you know, vice versa. You can not be like super quick to, to, to soak up information, but be deeply thoughtful and inspired, realize a vision. You can be a great, you can absolutely be a great leader still, you know, and realize a personal mission. Yeah. So it's almost like it would be fair to say that personal intelligence is more connected to flourishing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, you know, you see, you see, I'm saying that, that we can still call it personal intelligence and not invalidate that yeah. general intelligence exists. Right. It's yeah. like two things. Yeah. Both can be present. One exactly. can be present. The other can be present. Um, exactly. That's why I kind of, yeah, no, um, right. when you gave me that Sir Ken Robinson thing, it's like, I, I feel like some of this stuff is pitted too much is like, it's not this, it's this. And I feel like a lot of people sell books by saying things like that. We, I think what we need more of in our society is more of end thinking, what, what they would call it improv. Yes. And. But I think we need more of that in the public discourse. And you see this in politics, you know, you're, you're either a liberal or you're a Republican. And then I, I constantly shock people, you know, because I say, 
no, I think that was a good point that that Republican made. No, I think that was a bad point that Democrat made. And then sometimes I'll say the opposite because I like taking things on a case by case basis. No, no, it's trying so, to get political there for a second. No, not at all. I mean, and it, and it's interesting that, that the idea of, of these sort of like like two different types of intelligences, and they're both playing a role and sort of like weaving together and having different outputs into the way that you experience life is really interesting also. And that, you know, if you just automatically say, well, that's not the valid one, and I'm going to focus on this, you may get the benefit of this, but it's the sort of compound interest of both that leads to sort of optimal human experience. I love the way you talk. <laughs> that, was such, that was so well put. You know, the subtitle of Ungifted... Which is one of your books, by the way, for those... One of my books, yeah. part of the subtitle was The Many Paths to Greatness. Right. Yeah. So I really feel like I'd been building up to that yeah, yeah. subtitle. Interesting also that your first sort of big thing, you know, the first thing you put out there, or a lot of your research, early research, is based around redefining intelligence. But as you mentioned, sort of along the way, you're existing largely in an academic world, which is a completely surreal like universe that has its oh. own rules, its own culture. And I still feel uncomfortable among academics. Right. But yeah. you're but you're also you're writing things where you're saying, okay, so I'm deep into academic theory. I'm deep into science. I'm deep into validation. And at the same time, you, because, and I wonder if this is because you have lived this as your own experience, you're also fiercely devoted to, but how does this influence the way that people live on a day-to-day life? Absolutely. What drives me the most these days is, is my love of teaching. I I feel like that is my problem. No, that is my number one sort of purpose these days, you know, is what lights me up is I get really enthusiastic. I consider myself a teacher in life. Maybe, but maybe it's not just through my college teaching, but like my blog at Scientific American, for instance, I, I view that as a form of teaching, you know, what I really like to do is I get enthusiastic about things. And then I want to impart that, that to people so that they can live a better life. You know, I mean, this is, does that sound familiar? <laughs> but, but you know, I created this course, Columbia, that I start teaching on Wednesday called The Science of Living Well. And I'm really excited to think through with the students for what does the science mean for their own individual life? I, I love it when I get asked the question. I'm on the radio. Sometimes they ask me, well, what's the definition of living well? And it's like, give me a break. Like, <laughs> you, the definition for you is some only you can figure that out. Yeah, it's so interesting because I I because you know the last question I always ask everyone here is like like if I offer the phrase to live a good life what does that mean to you? And so many people have asked me like you know like well what is it? Like what is the what is the universal oh, answer gosh. to that? 42. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm, and I'm, what I've realized now having like asked this to hundreds of people across every domain, every level of performance and achievement is that in fact yes there are some universal themes, but each person's like experience of that is going to be very unique to them and they language it different and they experience it different and they focus on something different. And and I've had guests that have come back a couple of years later and because they're in a different part, they're not who they were, you know, like four years before and they're a different moment in their life. You know, like their answer changes. So it's like, it's a dynamic thing as well. I love that. It's so true. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm endlessly fascinated with how people have chosen to spend their short lifespan on this earth. I'm more curious of it than I'm like not judgmental. Maybe I should be more judgmental sometimes, but I just, you know, like people like, but that person was an asshole. And it's like, no, I'm just fascinated with that's like, that's how that person chose to spend their life is maybe arguing with people on Twitter all day, you know, but that's their choice. Sometimes I think we need to have more respect and honor the sacredness of a life, you know, of an existence. I, I really think we there needs to be more sacredness about that and, and a recognition that you have chosen your life this way, but this other person has chosen to live their life their way. And it's okay if it's completely different than your own thing. But we need to have love and compassion for that that route that they did because, you know, we were all endowed with the same basic same structure of the brain. You know, what differs is there, there's very subtle differences, but that explains all the variation. You know, there's like, we share like 98% of the same DNA with chimpanzees, right? It's like the very small part that is unique, you know, to humans, like causes all the variation we see among humans. And it's that very small variation that somehow causes us to be so different in how we choose to live our lives, but doesn't make one life a better life necessarily than another life. It's just interesting to think, oh, huh, like I, I, I will look at a lot of examples of things with less of a judgmental lens where everyone else will judge, you know, be like, oh, you know, that person, you know, and I just think like, wow, that, you know, what are the factors that really cause that person to be content living that life? It's just, it, I find it endlessly fascinating, you know? Yeah. It's almost like everybody is a case study. <laughs> everyone. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, and, and, and I think. We tend to overlay it. Like I'm raising my hand because I'm human, just like everyone else, and I'm I'm probably much less. I'm, I'm more closed than you are. I think I'd like to think I'm open, but the truth is, I look at people. I'm like, how could you want to live your days so angry, so frustrated? And I'll look at and I find myself getting frustrated because I'll look at somebody's life and I'll be like, you have you have privilege, you have resources, you have relationships, you have status. And yet, these are the choices that you're making when there are so many people that don't have the benefit of those things. 
And I think a lot of people get frustrated. Well, if, if the way somebody else is acting is impinging on your personal freedom, then I can understand that, but that's a different conversation. But I think a lot of people get frustrated because they look at others who they perceive as having so much available to them and, and yet they choose to sort of live in a very negative place and contribute from a very negative place and contribute energy that mm. is negative or destructive rather than constructive and additive. And my sense is that's what frustrates a lot of people, me included. And, and I wish I didn't feel that way. Curious just sort of what your lens on that is. I mean, that's how they chose to live their life. You know, in some ways, you know, we can have, I, 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 on my podcast, I had a great chat with Sharon Salzberg, who I love about this, we, this exact conversation we had. And, you know, we, we can, we can have a loving kindness practice where we recognize that person probably is suffering. Like, you know, if we wish, if we wish less suffering in the world, you know, we should wish less suffering for that person as well, because it's only going to lead that person to live a better life. That And in, and there's a cor- very strong correlation between living a good life and, and, and contributing to the world in a positive way. There is a correlation there. I mean, like, there's a science of that. That's not a judgment value call. I'm saying there's a correlation. So the more that we can really help people live a good life, the more we will benefit the world. But, you know, with some people, you really see so clearly they're suffering. They're, they're taking out what they're doing is they're projecting their traumas on the world and they're not owning up to it within themselves. And you can see that all over the place these days, all over, you know, like anyone who tries to control someone else's uh, life, someone else is living well, you know, in such a tight way to conform to uh, their own rigid or, or selfish needs, you know, they're clearly that that's a form of suffering on their own part, you know? So, yeah. And, yeah. And, and I agree. And that's, that's been the lens that I try and take you know, is what, what must they have gone through? Like that's led them to this place in their life to be this way in the world. And it's, it's a good and, question. Um, and yeah. it's, sometimes it's easier to find compassion. <laughs> sometimes that's it's true. Sometimes it's not, but I agree that that as a practice is, is, I think is a healthy aspiration for all of us. I don't know. I think I should get angry more than I do. And that's another, that's something I'm trying to deal with. I'm not necessarily saying that's a strength of mine and I'm not bragging about it. I'm saying sometimes maybe I should get more angry than I am, but my gut reaction when I see like, just like horrible people is I feel pain for them. Maybe I shouldn't like, maybe I should be like you mother, but I feel like there's so much more to their potential of their happiness of their meaning in life. They don't realize. But I wonder if that's a factor of the way that your brain works, where you see them as a puzzle. <laughs> maybe. That's and possible. like you love to deconstruct and figure out what's really, I do like here. deconstructing unless there are, there are examples, there are, there are exceptions. So I'm much more compassionate about those who have internalizing disorders where than externalizing disorders. So I am less, you know, I, I'm not perfect in that sense, you know, like that I'll see, like if people have a externalizing disorders where they really are almost totally deflecting their inner pain to make other people suffer, I see, do see less of a puzzle and more of like that person needs like to be stopped from that, you know? So, yeah, so. Right. So, and internalizing meaning more, it's it's manifesting in their own suffering versus externalizing. Yeah. It's manifesting I think in I other feel people's. more of that automatic yeah. feeling when I see. So, I see someone with like a borderline. My heart goes out to them, you know, like because you can clearly, clearly see, and that's a great case. Borderline is a case I is because I've studied that it pretty in depth in the general population. We just call it vulnerable narcissism. People who are such so sensitive to rejection, 
that they avoid the world and and uh, they avoid any criticism. They're they're just too delicately sensitive about it because they uh, inside at a deep fundamental level they think they're not worthy of love. You know they think, but it sometimes manifests itself in terms of grandiose delusions. Like I'm actually the best. It's a very paradoxical thing. Very paradoxical. But my heart goes out to them uh, big time. We have a little bit of that, all that in all of us, by the way. So it's just a continuum, you know. So, but my heart goes out because they're not really hurting. You know, they may hurt others, but they really are mostly like limiting them, their own selves from living a full life. Yeah. Which kind of sets us up for something else I really want to explore to you. And that's your most recent work, which is this idea of, you'll give me your language for it, but, you know, like stepping into your potential, understanding, stepping into ten, you know, like whether you call it flourishing, whether you call it self-actualization, it's, it's, it's the top of Maslow's hierarchy. And I know you've gone deep into what's publicly been seen as like Maslow's hierarchy and discovered that there's actually a lot more to that. <laughs> yeah, there is. There are a lot of misconceptions about the hierarchy of needs, uh, things that Maslow didn't actually say or you know, he never depicted it as a pyramid. Oh, no kidding. Uh, no, huh. no kidding. He did He did say there was a prepotency of needs, but he never said it was like a level, like a video game where like, you know, you, it, it, you know, you get one and then you never, and when you get to the next level, you never go back to the other level. He explicitly said that we're constantly regressing, you know, and he never drew it. Like I said, that was in business textbooks. He started to do that to depict his theory after he passed away, or, or maybe even the last couple of years of his life, they started doing that. I would have, I wish I could have had a conversation with them to see what, what do you think of that? What do you think of what they're doing there? But there's a lot of other misconceptions. A, a really quite big misconception is that he thought self-actualization was the pinnacle. He actually didn't. The last couple of years of his life, he really got very much more spiritual and started to view transcendence as more important than self-actualization. Tell me, how do you distinguish those two things? Well, you could kind of see self-actualization as bridge to transcendence. So you can see it as, you know, realizing your highest potential, your own, you know, idiosyncratic individual greatest strength. And then it's in the service of making the largest positive impact in the world. That but, would be the transcendent yeah, part? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be about impact. So much of it is just about being. So when we uh, reach certain states of consciousness, where we are really no longer focused on ourself, you know, we're really, you know, like the flow, I think that when we enter the flow state, we've entered a state of transcendence of a sort, you know, and self-actualization is an important bridge to that because we're more likely to enter flow if we really are operating at a great match between our highest potentialities and a task that is in front of us. It's so interesting that you, that you keyed in on the word impact as Sort of publicly, you know, when you when you say you make your highest contribution, people immediately translate to impact on others. And it's funny because I, I feel, you know, you have the research background behind it and you've gone so deep into, I know Maslow's work and I haven't, but my intuitive sense for a long time now, and this is sort of like the way I've been modeling things in my head, is that, you know, we can reach sort of that state in one of two ways. One is, and it's partly is sort of like the, what's what's driving us on a deeper level. You know, there are some of us are driven by some kind of source code that manifests its highest contribution in a way that leads naturally to an outward impact on other people. Whereas other people get to that same place, but it manifests itself in a way where you feel like that thing inside of you is being as fully expressed as it could possibly be expressed. Right. And you are, you, you, there is no gap between you and, and the world. And, and yeah. 
Correct. And, and that's what Maslow called a peak experience. Oh, that's that's interesting. And you being that person very often has tremendous impact simply Correct. because of what radiates from from you. That's right. You know, an artist is doing like they're in that place where they're right. they're in creating magical things that yeah. other people interact with it. But that's not why you're doing it. It just happens to be like a, a beautiful side effect. That's trans- transcendence is yeah, just by you being who you are in the world, yeah, is uh, is making the world a better place. Yeah. It's and, it's about being, not doing. And but I think it's interesting because my sense is that there there's a morality play here where mm. the thing where it's like you do the thing where there is a clearly delineated path to external impact and people like you. Yeah, that is valid contribution. That is you doing the best work. That is you in the transcendent zone. But you do the thing where like you're just an artist and you're doing your absolute best work, you know, where it rises to the level where you lose yourself in the thing and the the wall drops between you, the thing and the world. And you know, that that's not as valid somehow. That that's more self-oriented. That's unfortunate. That's really unfortunate. And that's a big misrepresentation of what Maslow thought about self-actualization as this selfish individualistic pursuit, despite the impact on others. That's not how he viewed it. Yeah. So you you have, I mean, this has also become an area of research for you, recent research. It has, so yes. Tell me a bit about what, what you've done. In, in multiple that. areas, some which will be revealed Hopefully someday, if I ever publish this book I'm working on, I hope I will. Can I, can I knock on one? Another area of research I can talk about right now is that I did go through Maslow's writings and his characteristics of self-actualizing people. And I created scales to, after some pilot testing, I wanted to see which ones held. He, he posited 17 in his research. And I found that- 17, like pieces of the self-actualizing right, characteristics. Yeah. Okay. And he wrote, he wrote this paper called Self-Actualizing People which was not based on very good science. It was based on his informal studies of science, his Brooklyn College students, uh, like famous people that he thought were self-actualized, you know, just basically reading their biography and stuff. So it wasn't systematic. I found about, I found 10 characteristics, you know, I eliminated some redundancies and then some others couldn't come up with coherent scales to measure them. But I found a list of 10 that I could reliably measure and that all held together. Yeah, uh, you know, all fed into a hierarchy, higher order. Just like there's general intelligence, I found a general self-actualization. So, so essentially, you did research that identified ten key characteristics of self-actualization. <laughs> yeah, can you run through those quickly? I know it's like putting you on the spot. Do you remember all ten? <laughs> you know, people should certainly go to selfactualizationtest.com and take the test. And I'll tell them, show them where they are on the various characteristics. But there's things that range from equanimity to acceptance to authenticity to peak experiences. Creative spirit would be another one, humanitarianism. But it's not really humanitarianism in the sense, and I'm thinking about renaming that actually. It's more like, there are two which I'm thinking of rename, relabeling. So it's more about like, it's just social interest. We're not saying that it's like you have to like have this dream of, of being a Gandhi, but it's just like, are you completely devoid of all implications of your work for you know like do you care about humanity at all mm. you know nah. in, um, invested in some way or another in, in some yeah, yeah yeah so i mean it's interesting so these would be essentially 10 characteristics truth seeking is another one yeah oh that's interesting too so 10 characteristics that are correlated yes. in some way individually yes. like each one has its own correlation yes. with, in some way shape or form self-actualization with self-actualization right yeah. and self-actualization Just like iq what, yeah. Tell me like another, just sort of like a common language w- word or phrase for self-actualization. 
for anyone who's not kind of familiar with this, or like, what is the experience of self-diagnosis? How does that actually show up in your life if you're self-actualized? What a great question. Well, it, it is a very nebulous term. And I mean, there isn't like, I don't have a precise definition. You know, I, like I said earlier, it's like, what is, what is your own, like, what, what makes you the best you in the whole world? You know, like there is something within you that you can literally be the best of in the whole world because you're the only one that has those characters. You're you're the only one in the world that can develop those potentialities. No one else can, you know, because of your unique constellation of traits. So what is that thing that is deep within you, potential that you want to actualize that will make you the most idiosyncratic, personally significant realization? It doesn't necessarily, like I said, then we can get the transcendence part in there as well, but just the self-actualization part is just having to do with like the individual thing. Cause, because Maslow's in his hierarchy, he had all these other basic needs. Those are things though that, that evolutionarily we all share with each other. So self-actualization is that need to realize that thing that we don't share with everyone else. Self-actualization is that need though. We're, we're never fully happy or feel fully fulfilled if we just get our our stomach fed, if we just get our steam needs fed. You, you constantly hear about people who reach the height of, achi- of publicly recognized achievement and say, wow, I still feel so deeply unsatisfied. You know, We're always striving for higher ceilings on human nature. And that's what I really loved about, about Maslow's work and why I think we need to bring it back. Yeah. And it's so interesting. And also as, you're, as you lay this out, what's interesting to me is, so I'm certainly not a scholar, but I've, I've done some, some work and some research and some reading and some studying in Eastern philosophy and spiritual traditions like Buddhism love that. And, yeah. and, and yoga, you know, the eight limb path to yoga, especially Ashtanga yoga with uh, certain moral constraints and offerings and teachings. And what's interesting is like, there's an eight limb path to Ashtanga yoga, you know, and it starts out with, with very mundane practices designed largely just to take care of your basic functionality needs. And it moves up to these, really, it moves up to these more esoteric mindset-based things. And the ultimate goal, you know, like the the final number eight in that path is, is uh, the Sanskrit word is samadhi, which translates to bliss, which also could be called transcendence. So it's interesting to see the overlay between what you're saying and these traditions. Huge overlay. And I, I, I've, I've tried to, I, I, a project that I'm currently working on, I map all these different words. I have a chart of like, they're all saying the same thing. Oh, you know, no like sati, oh, you know, so and cool. like, we're all talking about the same thing at the highest the sort of stage of human consciousness. And yeah. Okay. So, so let me ask you this. And maybe this is kind of like a good come full circle question also. You know, you're, you have gone massively down the academic you know, rabbit hole <laughs> down the the research. Is that a good thing? <laughs> no, it, it is. You know, like, you know, like you, you're, you're deeply steeped in, in the world of science, of validation, of, you know, like peer reviewed, of publication, of having other people vet and, and defending your work. And, and you've sort of come around increasingly. And you're also deeply steeped in the world of positive psychology, which is, I would almost argue more outwardly focused on the human condition. It's a bit more applied, I think, than some other fields. And now you're kind of coming to this place where your work is is connected to these things where now you're actually mapping and seeing all these overlays with thousands of year old spiritual traditions and paths that don't have any of the scientific validation or anything like this. But it seems like it's all pointing back to a lot of the same stuff. Right. It's almost like, why do, why, why do we need any of this? <laughs> right. Let's and just listen to the Because it's funny because I've often looked at positive psychology and- and said, well, well, huh, this is interesting. It's always felt like 
the scientific validation of Buddhism to me. <laughs> Everything seems to be the scientific validation. <laughs> these some days, of the right? most uh, these days, yes. Every sort of new form of therapy these days includes mindfulness. You know, like the ACT approach. You know, like the DBT. Ther- like it's all like that needs to be a component of it, or else it's not considered, somehow not considered a valid form of therapy. No, it's a very good point. I mean, I've talked to I, I have I have other friends who are writers who write about do self-help stuff and they just see, they, they see like no value in, in systematic scientific research, you know, like it's just like, there's like, this is, but I will say it, I, not with you, very much not with you, but with some of these other people who, who do have this kind of attitude is I see an awful lot of hubris in them in that they think they have all the answers though. What I like about science is that it, it, it offers us a lot of humility. It, it kind of allows me to, recognize that I don't know if what I think is true is really true. And it allows me to really look into the evidence and see what does the totality of the evidence suggest. It, it offers, there's intellectual humility, a, a mindset of being a scientist, not saying that all scientists have intellectual humility, but there's a certain way of thinking when you're a scientist that I quite like. And I do see a lot of people in this self-help development space spouting a lot of nonsense you know, like maybe they didn't, maybe they should just listen to Buddha more. Maybe that, that's a good point that you could make is that, well, maybe it's not, they need to learn science more. Maybe they just need to like stop being so hubristic and actually listen to people who got it right, you know, back in the day. But I see a lot of hubris. Yeah. And, and I think, like you said, I think my sense is there's a lot of good process out there, but we all, you know, when we start to want to attach our name to it as being something unique and new and, and it, like, this is my thing. I, I think it's, that's where we get tripped up. And like you said, that happens in the world of science all the time oh, also, yes. you know, it's, and we're oh, seeing, yes. we're seeing Especially so much of that. Yeah, a lot of that is really being challenged these days, but I agree. I think fundamentally, you know, there's, you know, the scientific process exists. It starts with a question and like, and, and in theory, the ultimate goal is just the truth. It's not proving yourself right. You know, but I think we all get caught up, whether it's in the world of academia and science, whether it's the world of, pop psychology or self-help and even the world of those spiritual traditions where people want to create like their own, you know, like special sauce, modern overlay. They're like, like, well, like how can I carve out my piece of this where I can put my name on the theory? Like I said, I'm, I'm human too. So I'm raising my hand. You're like there, but I think that is always maybe like that to me is the quest. Like how can we keep, how can we keep getting back to like, what is true? And then, and, and, and what is like, my things are what is true and what is useful. Yeah, you know, it always comes back to that to me. Well, that's wonderful. It's also wonderful that you're not dismissing the like that the truth is part of your value system, because I don't think that's the part. It's not necessarily everyone's value system. Yeah, but uh, hopefully it'll become <laughs> more so. And like I said, I'm a human being, so I'm not always oh, in that place. Gosh, that, of course. That's my aspiration. Of course. <laughs> there are like massively ego driven trips that I go on, like everybody oh, else. Oh my so. gosh. I, I would be the first one to to, to join you right there with that. Yeah, yeah of um, course. So there's so many other things that we could we could talk about. Maybe at some point down the road, we'll we'll have more conversations, especially hey, once your next I was gonna the say, next evolution of your work is what, out. There. I'm going to say yeah. when I publish this book, it can, will can happen. We talk about it, it. Will happen definitely a year or so because there's a lot more that I know you're sort of sitting on right yeah, now. That once yeah. it's out there, we'll, we'll circle yeah. back on. Yeah, I'm so glad we made this happen. So I want to come oh, full circle too. with. That question that I shared, I, I, I ask everybody at the end, which is yeah. if I offer out the phrase to live a good life yes. to you in this moment, what does that mean? Yeah, I, I really thought the Greeks got it right when they talked about eudaimonia, living life 
in accord with your most authentically felt values and your highest, greatest strengths. To me, that would be a fair, fair definition of living a life well-lived. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. T-Y-P-E.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.